From its first words to its last, the Gospel of Matthew calls people to a radical new frame of mind. In this literary masterpiece, the outsiders are brought in, the rich are exposed as poor, and those who seem most powerful are proven to be weak. But nothing in this book is as shocking as the circumstances surrounding the birth, life, death, and resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth and the claims he makes on our lives. It's a narrative so profound, everyone has a response. Well, good morning, Westside. Uh, good to see you as well. I want to welcome you along with Tiffany. Uh, it is great to, great to have you here on this Sunday morning and uh, a special welcome to you guests. My name is Norm. I'm one of the pastors here and I invite you to take out your Bibles if you have one, either in book or app form and find the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. We took a hiatus from studying this uh, particular gospel in the late spring, went through the summer, but now after kind of the launch of our ministry year in September, we are now coming back to it. So over these next couple of months, we'll pick up where we left off. And then in December, around Christmas, we'll do some other things as connected to that season. And then in January, we will be uh, walking through a 10-week series on the first three chapters of Genesis, a series that we are calling Eden, just to give you a bit of a sense of where we're going. A very great and relevant and practical series, I hope, and uh, assume right now it will be, uh, simply because of the topics that we're going to address. So we're going to address creation, we're going to address work, we're going to address gender, we're going to address marriage, we're going to address kids, we're going to address evil, all of those types of things. So just keep that in mind as we get closer to 2018. Well, Matthew chapter 15, we're looking at the first 20 verses of, of this chapter. So with that in mind, let me pray. It's a really, really important text. They're all important, but man, this one's very important and I don't want to blow it. So let's pray together. Father, this is, I'm not giving lip service, this is very important, this text. It is so relevant to the times that we live in. Um, and so I pray, oh, I pray, uh, that, that you, Holy Spirit, would, would take that which I'm going to present and fill it and, and go to our hearts and minds. I, I pray to that end. I pray that ministry takes place. I don't want to give another sermon today. I want ministry to take place by way of the sermon today. So I, I pray that you would take this time. I offer it to you humbly, realizing that without you showing up, this is a waste of time. Nothing good will take place. So I pray that you would work and that sweet ministry would result, that lives would be changed. So I pray to that end. I, I pray to that end. Please be gracious to us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. A little history lesson to get things rolling this morning. In 586 B.C., uh, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom called Israel. You had the southern kingdom called Judah. In that year, Judah was taken into captivity by uh, Babylon under the monarchy of King Nebuchadnezzar. 48 years later, they were given freedom. They were allowed to leave this tyranny, this captivity, and return to their, to their land. With that return, several very significant things took place. One was the building of the walls of Jerusalem. You can read about that in the book of Nehemiah. 
In addition, there was a refurbishing of the temple that had been desecrated. And connected to this going back with those things was a rededication to the Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, their Scriptures, the law of God. A great rededication where they read the law of God again, they heeded the law of God again, at least for a time, and they began making copies of the law of God. Multiple copies so that they could get them into other people's hands and the leaders of that time could speak and read the the book of the law and allow the people to understand what God was calling them to. In addition to that, the copies and the reading and the, the proclamation of it, there were comments that were added to the book of the law. Comments connected to hard to understand passages or passages connected to calls or commands, but questions coming out of it like, well, how do I, how do, I do that? So, for example, God calls us to Sabbath rest. So the question came, what, what's work? What, how is work defined? Questions like that. We're called to uh, be careful in terms of the food we eat and how our food is prepared. So what should guide us in, that connect, in connection to, to that call? Calls of impu- uh, purity and impurity, that we should remain not defiled or undefiled. So what defiles us? What defiles us? What doesn't defile us? What can I give myself to? What shouldn't? And if I'm defiled, if that in fact takes place, then how am I cleansed? So comments related to questions like that and many, many more. These commentators were referred to as scribes. The first scribe that we read of in the Old Testament is an individual named Ezra. He has a book named after him. And they commented on the text, as I said, to help people along. But over time, These comments later talked about or referred to um, as traditions or rituals, well-intended as they were on the front end, came to be revered. In fact, even even more revered, believe it or not, in some circles than God's own word. With the demarcation between the two, meaning the comments and the word of God becoming less and less distinct. One historian writes this, by Jesus' day, so like I said, what started in that 5th century with the return to their territory, by Jesus' day, fast forward, the tradition of the elders had for many years supplanted Scripture as the supreme religious authority in the minds of Jewish leaders and of most of the people. The traditions even affirm that the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. And it became a greater offense in Judaism to transgress the teaching of some rabbis than to transgress the teaching of the Scripture. These traditions were eventually gathered. They began to be passed on originally orally. But these oral traditions and customs and so forth were eventually gathered and they were put together in something called the Talmud. The Talmud is exhaustive. My Bible, this Bible, I have a big bad boy Bible, is about 1,700 pages. The Talmud consists of 6,200 pages commenting on just the Old, the Old Testament. It's exhaustive. It's a great layout of these comments One famous and defining story in the Talmud demonstrates how the authority of the rabbis overshadowed the authority of God. 
and in their estimation, stripped God of his sovereignty. Let me read the following story. It's a famous story that records a debate between two rabbis, Rabbi Eleazar and Rabbi Yehoshua. I'll read the following for you. A debate arose from a question asked by a man who owned an oven. He enlarged it by breaking it into pieces and then reassembling it using sand to create a bigger oven. The debate brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, was whether the new oven was kosher or impure. The Talmud specifies that Rabbi Eliezer had brought forward every imaginable argument and proved that the oven was, in fact, kosher. But the vast majority of the rabbis of the Sanhedrin would not accept his arguments and claim that the oven was not kosher. Rabbi Eleazar went on to prove his claim, saying it was, using supernatural signs. A carob tree miraculously uprooted itself and replanted itself on the other side of the court. A channel of water flowed uphill. But the climax of the story was when Rabbi Eliezer called out, if the halakha, halakha is, it's sort of the, how does this get fleshed out? So take this text and this is how it to be, is to be lived out. If the halakha agrees with me, let it be proved from heaven. And then God spoke from the heavens and said, why do you dispute with Rabbi Eliezer with whom the halakha always agrees? Meaning, God called out from the sky saying that Rabbi Eleazar was right. Then Rabbi Yehoshua stood and made one of the most significant claims in the Talmud and in the Jewish world. The Torah, meaning the law, is not in heaven. The Talmud goes on to say that after the debate, God smiled in agreement and said, my children have defeated me, my children have defeated me, meaning God submitted to the authority of the rabbis, which they say had always been part of his plan, and therefore even God admitted that their rulings not only surpassed the authority of Moses, meaning the written law, but the authority of God himself. From then on, it's stated, God stopped revealing himself to the people of Israel as he did in biblical times. From that moment on, the rabbi's judgment and rulings are the new Torah, which they call the oral law. So with that as background, Matthew 15, verses 1 to 20, a a, a lengthier text that is actually centered upon or built upon three conflicts that we're going to look at. So conflict number one, if you're taking notes to get things kicked off, I'm entitling the tradition of man versus, here's the conflict, the traditions of man versus the commands of God. Let's pick things up in chapter 15 by reading just the first two verses. Then Pharisees and scribes, 500 years of history with these individuals now, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Just two verses. But we learn so much in just two verses. 
One of the things that stands out most of all in these two verses is the opposition towards Jesus is not only ramping up, it's getting aggressive. It's, it's, it's getting offensive. In other words, what we read in verse 1 is this group of Pharisees and scribes came from Jerusalem. That should stand out to us. Who is this group of Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem? Well, the very fact that they're from Jerusalem, the epicenter of all things, all things religious at that time, is this is the A-team. This would be the most revered group. This, is, this would be the most highly trained group. And they're so put off by Jesus that they're willing to leave Jerusalem and travel to a remote part of Galilee to confront Jesus, and they begin their confrontation with a question, a question that we read in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. What are they doing? Well, they're making the teacher responsible for the action of his students, certainly. They're your disciples, Jesus. They don't eat, they don't eat or excuse me, they don't wash before they they eat. How can that be? How can you let that go? Why don't you speak into this? In addition, they don't make any attempt to mask their displeasure and their high self-regard, do they? Why do your disciples not follow the traditions of the elders, our traditions? Tell them to get things together, Jesus. They're following you, Jesus. But knowing what we do now, we can't understand why they, why they don't feel the need to mask their disregard of Jesus and the disciples, the high regard for themselves, in other words. We shouldn't be surprised that they're pressing in on Jesus in connection with this question because of what we know about them and the high value that they put on their traditions. Jesus, however, and I love this, feels no need to answer their question. In fact, Jesus goes full counterattack with them by asking a question of his own, as we can see in verses 3 to 6. Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You're asking me why my disciples aren't following the traditions, your traditions, while it's your very tradition that are keeping you and keeping others from obeying the commands of God. Namely, the fifth, a command that made the top ten. Your traditions are keeping people from honoring father and mother. Now, we need a little background at this point, too, to appreciate what's taking place here. For if you don't get the background, you may not appreciate all of it. So a little bit of background at this point as well. It's not spoken of here directly, but certainly inferred in the text the call of taking care of one's family, especially aging parents when the need arose. 
In other words, a fleshing out of the call to honor one's mother or father gets lived out by you and me taking care of them if they need a rose. That's connected to this. That's why Jesus talks about this in connection with this fifth commandment. In fact, this idea of taking care of our aging parents when they need a rose is something that flows through the Bible from beginning to end. In fact, for those of you that are familiar with the book of Isaiah, God, through the prophet Isaiah, gets, on to, gets in the grill of the people of God by saying, you hid from family when there was a need. Repent of that. You need to take care of your parents. And it flows all the way, like I said, throughout the whole Bible because we see it in places like the New Testament text, 1 Peter, if we can put it on the screen, there, excuse me, 1 Timothy, where Timothy... Paul writing to Timothy writes, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we have this call. Take care of them. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, they were experts in the law. They, They knew the Ten Commandments, obviously, and therefore they certainly knew the Fifth Commandment to honor their father and mother, but to get around it to not following it, they added a tradition of their own. A tradition of their own that exempted them from it, a tradition called Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. You can read about it in Mark chapter 7 in his account of this event. What this tradition allowed you to do was to declare something in your possession set aside for God's use. Corban. If you set it aside for God's use, in other words, you declared it Corban, it couldn't be used outside of God's use. In fact, it was forbidden to be used outside of God's use. So you had some cash, you had resources, you had some parents, your parents were in need, but you didn't want to help out your parents because you like your stuff. And you want to go to Hawaii next week. Or you want to get a car next year. Or you want to send your kids to college in a couple of years. And so what do you do? I don't want to spend it on my parents. Corbin. It's, it's now no longer available. But here's the beauty of Corbin. The resources stayed with you. And if you, in the future, in your great wisdom, determined that that actually would be better used for something else, go to your resource and say, Corbin. And it's back it's back in, it's, it's yours again. Convenient. Really convenient. Because you haven't broken the law of God. You've just set aside something for God's use. I mean, that's, that's great. That's Corbin. That's, that's the tradition that was started that allowed them, allowed them this ability to not use it and take care of, of those in their family, the resources stay with me. But this leads to one author commenting and writing this. The tradition was not designed to serve God or the family, but the selfish interests of the person making the vow. But do you see what's taken place over these centuries? Traditions that were originally meant to guard the law of God were now keeping people from it. Leading Jesus to say in verse 7, you freaking hypocrites. I don't know if it says that in yours, it's my translation. (laughs) 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, scribes and Pharisees, you're giving God lip service. You sing, you fast, you pray, you give, you Sabbath. But all it's serving to do is mask your hard and cold hearts. It's all you're doing. You're going through the motions and nothing more. But here's the thing. You may be tricking others because that's what traditions do. They can trick others. Rituals do the same thing. Our acts of, of religion can do the same thing. Trick others. Suggesting to others that our souls are good. Hearts are good. Passion for God is good. But we're not tricking God for he doesn't, he doesn't merely see or consider the outside, but the heart always has. Always concerned about the heart. So the obvious question at this point, something to wrestle with as we continue on through this text, is how's your heart? How's mine? How's your heart? Is it cold and hard towards God? People look at you, however, because of your traditions, your practices, and go, man, his, his soul is good. We, we just sang three songs. Do they reveal your heart? Or are they masking your heart? So conflict number one, the tradition, tra traditions of men versus the commands of God. Conflict number two shows up in verses 10 and 11, which I'm entitling, perceived defilement versus real defilement. Let's pick things up. And Jesus called the people to him. Just note that. Why weren't they with him? More than likely because when the Pharisees and the scribes were there, they backed off because they were revered. So Jesus calls the crowds to him. And he said to them, hear and understand. Listen up. Take a knee. Listen. What I'm about to say is vital for you to hear. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. That word defile is very important to this text. It comes up four times. Just note it. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. So Jesus moves from talking to, talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls the crowd to them. He says, listen up. Something I need to make crystal clear to you. What you eat doesn't defile you. Doesn't defile you. So let me give you a little more background and help understand, help you understand what's taking place here. What is all of this stuff about eating and defiling and all of that type of thing? Well, it was held at that time. That as you went through your day, just living life, going to the marketplace, going to someone's house, doing this, doing that, that throughout the day you could be defiled. Accidentally or perhaps something that you did purposely. 
But there are a number of different things that would defile you. They had a big, long list. If you used utensils that weren't properly cleaned, that would defile you, for example. If you came across a sinner, a tax collector, a, a Gentile, a harlot, that could defile you. If you entered a certain house, that could defile you. If you ate certain foods, that could defile you. And so on, and so on, and so on. In their mind, if that defilement wasn't washed off, it would enter you by the food you ate. So you're going through the day, you're defiled, you take up whatever you're eating with your hands that are now defiled hands, put it in your body, eat it, you're now defiled. That was the mindset. Certain rabbis even taught that a demon named Shibta attached itself to people's hands while they slept. And that if they weren't ceremonially cleaned or washed, Shibta would actually enter the body through food handled by defiled hands. Purell should use that as part of an ad campaign. They would sell millions of bottles. The value of ceremonial cleansing was held so high that one rabbi insisted that, and I quote him, Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he will obtain eternal life. So we aren't talking about hygiene here. We're talking about spiritual defilement and cleansing. So this isn't a text that you kids can use on your parents the next time they talk to you about washing your hands before eating. You can't cry out, you hypocrite. <laughs> well did Isaiah prophesy about you. You can't, you can't say that. That's not what this is. Additionally, it was believed that one wasn't simply defiled by eating with unclean hands, but as I mentioned just a moment ago, unclean utensils, preparing food with unclean utensils and so forth. Also, you were defiled by eating certain foods themselves, specifically. That's why Mark adds in his recording of this event, saying this, recording this, Jesus said to them, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart? but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declare all, declared all foods clean, except quinoa. That's not, that's not, that's of Shibta. That's his, that's No, to which we go, amen, Jesus, thank you. But this is where the second conflict arises. Because what Jesus does for a whole group of people, a nation, is he flips everything upside down and declares that our defilement, a word that speaks of impurity, pollution, uncleanness, isn't an outside-to-in issue, but an inside-to-out one. That's important for us to hear today. So let's pick up what he says thereafter in verses 12 to 20. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? I love that. I love that. Especially in our world where this becomes the unpardonable sin. Do you know you offended me? And we take it, if somebody's offended, then what we've said is wrong. Altogether. Not always. 
The cross is offensive. We have to be ready to hear that and not evaluate what we said necessarily as being wrong. Now, sometimes what we do is wrong. Look at Jesus, you offended the Pharisees. What? I'm going to double back on that. It wasn't his concern. Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, the Father didn't plant the Pharisees. They're part of the weeds, as we've learned about earlier. Let them alone, they're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, which, this shouldn't surprise us, Peter has food issues for a long time hereafter. A long time. So Peter's going, I don't understand this. Food doesn't make us unclean? So Peter asked him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? See, there's often times when we come to the text where our confusion doesn't come because we don't understand it, but because we're not willing to heed it. So we say it's confusing when it's very straightforward. Explain this to us. He said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach, stomach and is expelled? Right? Or else it goes under your love handles. Those two things. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. There's our word again. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, these are what defile a person. But to eat with one uh, unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anybody. He couldn't be clear, could he? What defiles a person isn't the result of what you take in, but what's inside already, namely our hearts. Let me, I have to say that one more time, because this is as true on October 1st, 2017, here downtown Vancouver as it was then. What defiles a person, what defiles you, what defiles me, isn't the result of what we take in, but what's inside already, namely our hearts, our souls, the very essence of who we are. The very essence, our souls, our hearts are defiled, all of ours. That's what Jesus is saying. How do we know our hearts are defiled? Well, it's evidence to our hearts by what we say, what we do, and what we think. That's the list that Jesus gives in verses 18 to 20. What we do exemplified in things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and theft, and things like these. And what we say evidenced in the things like bearing false witness, deceiving people, lying to people, and slander, how we talk about people. And then finally, in what we think, showing up in evil thoughts, our lusts, Our meditations of, of the heart. So even though we would never, ever murder, boy, we've thought about how good life would be without that person. You know what I'm saying? My, I'm the only one. I know I'm not the only one. I'm looking at you. Right now, you're looking at me going, I wish you would get out of here. So, we, so you're all, all evil. So what we think of shows up that way. Now, here's what I know when I put my notes together. 
in saying this. When I come before a group of hundreds like this in this crazy city, and I say, what's in you? Vancouverites, what's in you is, is defiled. Your very soul, your very heart, who you are internally is defiled. Most of you don't agree with me. In fact, recent polls demonstrate that you don't agree with me. In one poll that I came across, 2014 poll, this question was asked, do you believe people are inherently good in their core, the essence of a person? Went to the streets, 67. Two out of three people said, yes, inherently good. That same question was taken to a mainline evangelical uh, conference denomination. 76% of the people said yes. More than the people on the streets. So I know that most of you don't don't agree with me. In other words, defilement is not an inside-me issue norm, but an outside-there-only problem. Besides, how can you say that we are defiled when we are capable of so much good? I mean, just look at the images of Houston and Puerto Rico. Just for example, you turn on the TV, you follow on the internet or whatever, and you see images of people that have come from around the world. They brought resources, and they bring their time and their energy. They bring in water and food. They rescue people. They're, they're starting the rebuilding of homes. I mean, you look at that. That looks so good, and it is so good, all being done in the face of such heartache. So how can you ignore that, Norm? Well, I'm not. And nor does Jesus. In fact, it adds to the dilemma surrounding this conversation. And Jesus spoke of it specifically. That very question that some of you want to pose. He spoke directly to it while teaching on prayer. While teaching on prayer, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, if you who are evil can give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven? Jesus readily admits that in our defiled state, we can do much good. We can do good things. And therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we turn on the TV and we see what's going on around the world. But the question then becomes this, and are you ready to address this question? How is it that people who are capable of such good are still so capable of doing that which is so evil? How is it that someone who can give so many volunteer hours to coach his kid's team can turn around and cheat on their kid's mom? How is it that someone can travel to Mexico to put up a new roof on an orphanage and can turn around and pilfer from his boss? How is it that someone who loves and cares for her children so deeply can lash out at them the way she does? And how is it that someone who can sing songs to Jesus with such passion in the morning turn around and slander the people Jesus loves that same afternoon? 
I mean, if we're to consider the good, then don't we need to consider the bad too? I mean, how are acts such as these and so many more possible from the same people? Well, Jesus answers. They're possible. In fact, they're certain for they're in us already. Consider this. Have you ever had a a spewing forth, a, a verbal barrage towards someone, someone close to you, and in the aftermath said something like, I am so, I am so sorry for that. I'm so sorry of what I said to you, but you need to know that's not my heart. Yes, it is. Yes, it is your heart. Now, maybe not the specific words themselves. Maybe you called that person you love an idiot or worse. And maybe that isn't your heart. Maybe you don't think that they're an idiot. Maybe that's certainly the case, but you can't dismiss how the words were said, can you? The anger, the lashing out, the vitriol, you can't ignore that. That was there, wasn't it? So maybe you don't think they're stupid. Maybe that truly isn't your heart. But in that moment, at least, what was was the desire to hurt them. And if that meant you saying something that you truly didn't believe, then so be it. Because the, the motive at that time wasn't honesty. The motive at that time was to hurt and to win. Where does that come from? That's what Jesus is getting at here. That comes from somewhere. Jesus answers by telling us that our words and our thoughts and our actions aren't birthed in a vacuum, but they come out of us. And that's why Jesus, on one hand, can say that our hearts defile us, and on the other, our words and our actions and our thoughts defile us, for the two are part and parcel. You you are that. And it gets expressed this way. And even if you do a really good job hiding it from others, wrapping yourself up in your traditions and your rituals, what you think about will reveal it. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's an internal issue, not an external. Inside out, not outside in. So conflict number one, traditions of men versus the commands of God. Conflict number two, Perceived defilement versus true or real defilement. And then the third, supposed cleansing versus true cleansing. We close with this point or this conflict. Uh, Thus far, truth be told, we've been pretty tough on the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Pretty tough. Not painting a very rosy picture, but for good reason. But here's the thing. For all their folly and foibles, for all of their... They're false. I do, with, I do agree with them on a couple of very important things. The first that I agree with them on is the fact that we're defiled. I, I agree with them wholeheartedly. I also agree, therefore, that people need to be and can be cleansed. I agree with them as well. In fact, more importantly than that, Jesus agrees with them. People are defiled. That was never, that's not a question in Matthew 15. 
And they need to be and they can be cleansed. In fact, I would say, in addition to that, nothing less than right standing before God is at stake if we're not cleansed. So I am with them. I am with them on those couple of points. But where I part company with them and believe they are oh so wrong is that our defilement is far worse than they perceive. And the way we are cleansed far different than they suggest and true cleansing far greater than they offer. As I said, the scribes and the Pharisees believed that if you were defiled going through your day before you eat, you have to cleanse yourself. This is what they do. I've got, it's Visual Aid Sunday. You're lucky. This is how we roll in October by Visual Aid Sunday. They would go through a very, very... Uh, specific process. What they would do is they would start, they didn't have pictures like this, but uh, you know, go with me, pretend it's clay, right? And I've made it myself in the backyard. So they have a picture and what they would do is they would begin by holding their hands up like this and I'll pull up my sweater so I don't get it wet. And they would pour, it had to be running water, it couldn't be still water and cleansing, it had to be moving or it wouldn't wash your defilement away. They, they stated. So they would pour down their hands like this, it had to get to your wrist. If it didn't get down to your wrist, it wasn't enough. They would go like this, both hands, and then they would point their hands down and they would do the opposite way, like that, clothe, cleaning it that way, defilement washed away, and then they would take fists and they would clean like this, and then they would clean like this, and they were ready to eat. They didn't do it just once per meal, they would do it before every course. Eat, wash, eat, wash, and so forth. They were then free to eat away without fear of being defiled. It was a detailed and time-consuming process, but what's the problem connected to it? The cleansing we need, the cleansing that they need, needs to be an internal one. To put it a different way, West Side and Friends, there is nothing you can do outside of you that will cleanse you of what needs to be cleansed. Nothing. No matter the ritual, the process, or how often you do it. No matter the pomp and the circumstances connected to it. No matter the devotion you give to it. Because we need to clean the inside. Our souls need to be cleansed. Who we are needs to be cleansed. How? What can cleanse a soul? What can cleanse an essence? There's only one thing. Only one thing that can clean a soul. That one thing is the blood of Jesus and nothing else. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses our soul. Now, why do I specifically state that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses our souls? Is found in the multiple texts in the New Testament that speak of it. Let me go through them with you rather quickly. You can note them for yourselves. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, we were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. John writes in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.12 writes, Jesus suffered in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Paul again in Colossians 1 verses 19 and 20 writes, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul one more time in Ephesians 2.13, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And finally, John in Revelation 1, 4, and 5, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us, and he does, and has freed us from our sins. How? How are we cleansed? By his blood. We're ransomed by his blood, cleansed by his blood, redeemed by his blood, sanctified by his blood, reconciled by his blood, peace given by way of his blood, brought near by way of his blood, and freed by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you and I whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing. That's what cleans our souls. In certain circles in the church, and I know my time is done, you need to know that um, talking about the blood of Jesus is not always popular. In fact, there are churches that have as mandates, directives, that you can't talk about the blood of Jesus. You can't mention it. You can't talk about it. You can't teach on it. You can't do anything in regard to the blood of Jesus. You certainly can't sing about it. The issue is that if you remove the blood of Jesus, then you remove the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you remove the sacrifice of Jesus, then you remove the cross of Jesus. And if you remove the cross of Jesus, then you essentially remove Jesus altogether. And if you remove Jesus altogether, then you remove all hope of our hearts being cleansed. Why would we not talk about the blood of Jesus and sing about the blood of Jesus and worship Jesus because of the blood of that he shed for us. As I close, I want to point out that, that our world today essentially agrees with the scribes and the Pharisees that we read of in this text. Today. You see, most people today would agree that our world has issues. Would they not? That our world is unclean and defiled and there are things going on, problems that need to be taken care of all around us. I think our world would agree on that. So what is their suggestion about cleaning it up? Well, if you get rid of him, or you get rid of them, or you destroy that, 
or you shut down that, or you start living better, then we'll be clean again. That's, that's what we need to do. We just need to wash ourselves of them or that or it. And we'll be good. Problems gone. Defilement taken care of. Everything clean. History would suggest otherwise. But what does Jesus say? What does the good teacher say? Jesus says that what we see out there is the result of what's in all of us. A defilement far worse. One that goes to our very hearts and souls and that the way we are cleansed far different leading to a cleansing that is far greater. Far greater. You don't need to wash before every course. Eternal, all-encompassing cleansing. Hearts cleansed. Even better than that, new hearts given. New hearts given. Entirely clean and forever that way. Let's pray together. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, a couple of questions that I want to ask leading into our prayer and our response time. The first, any traditions covering up hard hearts? Any songs being sung today covering up cold ones? Any traditions or rituals or practices being carried out that exempt you in your minds at least from other commands that he has for you? Any traditions being grabbed onto as a means of self-cleansing? Church attendance, baptism, giving, missions, service, and so on, it doesn't clean you. Only Jesus can clean you. All of those things done in response to the cleaning. Anyone needing a heart cleansing today for the first time? Anyone in need of being washed by Jesus today? So, Father, as we respond to you in light of these, these questions, as I prayed on the front end, I pray again that this would be a great time of ministry. I pray for salvation today. I pray for people to come to Jesus today. Say, Jesus, I want you. I repent of trying to do it on my own. Forgive me of my sins. I want you. I need you. So I pray for salvation today. People turning from a former way of life where they tried to save themselves to come into you the Savior. And for the rest of us, Father, there are things that we dupe ourselves into believing that run contrary to your call. Either to big calls or just specific things in our days. All calls from you are big, but big calls are small ones. The things in the day-to-day. -day. But we, we say no and we, we think we're okay because we do other things well. Forgive us of that mindset. So do whatever you need to do, I pray, for your glory and in our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.